electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and stocks are higher once again. The Nasdaq is up 5% so far in July. So are slowdown fears over, or is growth rallying because it's getting more scarce? We'll hear from one investor who says the worst likely isn't over. And the great Disney debate. It's the worst performing stock over three months, six months, 12 months. It's the worst year to date. Is it macro? politics, the CEO will have a bull bear debate. Plus, earnings season is in full swing. We've got another spate of big reports on tap. IBM, Johnson & Johnson, and Halliburton. It's all coming up in earnings exchange. But first, let's hit these market numbers. Come on over here while we dive in. The Dow is up 72 points today, and it's the laggard. It's up a quarter percent, while the S&P is up half a a percent, and the Nasdaq is up 1.2 percent today. Remember, this big rally goes back, well, this rally isn't so big, but it goes back to those big gains on Friday. The Nasdaq is leading the way today. As I mentioned, let's look through some of the areas where we're seeing big moves like the financials. Goldman's up almost 2% today after its results. That's helping kind of sentiment more broadly. B of A clinging on to about a quarter percent gain here. Goldman is one of the Dow leaders today. Boeing is in the mix as well after announcing that Delta will be buying 100 of their 737 MAX planes. BA shares are up about 1.5%. So that's contributing, I don't know, 15 points to Dow, something like that. And Let's not forget energy. Oil rising back above $100 a barrel today. We're at 101 on WTI right now. That's a 4% pop. Absolutely keep an eye on this. It's kind of the nemesis of the bull story, even though it certainly has energy investors breathing a sigh of relief. Transocean has Chesapeake, 5%-ish gains. The cruise lines are also leading the S&P. All three names seeing big gains in the range of about 8%, for instance, for Carnival and Crypto, those names moving to the upside as Bitcoin hits its highest level in more than a month. We're at 22,000 and change. Coinbase seeing gains today of almost 16%, putting the stock back around $62 a share. But my next guest says, don't get too comfortable. Another leg lower could be on the horizon for the markets. Joining me now is Cameron Dawson. She is the New Edge Wealth CIO. Cameron, it's good to have you back. And what do you see panning out here, uh, this giving way to a a deeper sell-off? Well, we think that this rally can continue in the coming days, and it really comes from looking at how short positioning got. We can look at things like the CFTC short positioning and saw that it was as short as it was since back in the COVID meltdown in 2020. So usually when everybody agrees that they're short, everybody agrees that they're bearish, it really sets you up for a market rally in the opposite direction. Now, we think we could get to about 4,100, but that's some pretty formal resistance. That's the 100-day moving average, which is now downward sloping. And we think that the risk is that we roll over from there because data isn't that 
bad yet. Usually at major market lows, data gets to the point that it's so bad that it's good. And right now it's kind of middling. It started to deteriorate, but really not so bad that it either warrants you being a contrarian or it warrants the Fed pivoting to step up and support the markets with added liquidity, support the economy. So because of that, we think the risk is that we roll over once we hit that resistance. All right. So all of that said, I mean, what do you say to people who are, we spoke on Friday with Aneta Markowska at Jeffries about how the second half of the year could see kind of a Goldilocks macro setup. Now she still thinks a recession sometime in 2023. But what do you say to those who, who wonder if we're going to have a pause here uh, to at least assess the damage? Maybe we've had this nice reset and, you know, it's a period of time where, where the market can do okay. Growth, for instance, what parts of the market, if any, would you be in right now or would you just be, stay clear of the whole thing? Yeah, we're still very much invested in the market. Uh, we haven't taken down equity exposure in a meaningful way because we are long-term investors and we're sensitive to taxes. So because of that, remaining invested is important, but it's not just broad-based. We're being very focused and focusing just on the quality parts of the market. We're balanced between value and growth and really picking those leaders of quality in each of those different styles. But as we think about the rest of the year, you know, the one good thing to note is that typically seasonality in midterm election years is really rather strong coming out of the midterm election. So if we think over the next couple of months, maybe we're stuck in greater volatility because of Fed continuing to tighten, because inflation remaining elevated, we do wonder once we get towards the end of the year, the better seasonality, if we could stage you know, for a, a late part of the year rally that could kind of bring the overall returns for the total year higher. But the question is, do we go lower before we get to that point? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, if, if you think we might be getting to that point, you're kind of buying all the way through. I mean, if you think we're going to be higher at any point in the next five or 10 years, you buy now. This is a gift for long-term investors, isn't it? It is. And, and you know, that's where we've been really identifying different levels, not just for the market overall, but for specific stocks that we want to be buyers. So one of the things that we've identified is the level around 3,500, where we would get much more aggressive at adding to positions. And the rationale for that one is that that brings us back to the pre-COVID highs. That brings us back to 2019 levels, where now if we compare earnings of today in 2022 versus versus 2019, we're 47% higher. So even if we saw some kind of liquidity event, some kind of shock that brought the market lower, or earnings, which still really haven't been cut, that need to come lower, even if we have that kind of sell-off and we undershoot to the downside below 3,500, we're still buyers at that level because we think looking out a year, two years from now, it'll still be very attractive because you are getting more for less. Final comment on energy and healthcare. Those are two names you like, right? Two sectors, yeah, so I should say. Exactly. We like healthcare because it is a more defensive sector in an uncertain economic time, but it's a lot cheaper than the other defensives. Utilities and staples, they trade at a 20% premium to the market. Healthcare is at a 3% discount, and we think that it has more earning stability. Within energy, we can see this bounce today off of the 200-day off of moving average for the sector as well as for oil itself, and we think oil prices remain extraordinarily tight in the physical 
physical market, which just says that they're very sensitive to an upside shock. Say we get geopolitical news, say we get a hurricane. That means that oil prices could shoot higher with that scenario. And there have been extreme outflows from the energy ETF, meaning people have given up on the sector, still trading at a reasonable valuation. So we like it paired with healthcare as that late cycle play. All right. Late cycle is certainly what we're hearing a lot about. Cameron, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Cameron Dawson. Meantime, Reuters is reporting that a number of U.S. chip makers may oppose the CHIPS Act if the bill's final language ends up disproportionately benefiting Intel. The stakes are actually pretty high for defense companies like Lockheed Martin as well. Elon Moy spoke exclusively with Lockheed CEO and joins us with those highlights. Elon? Well, Kelly, Lockheed CEO Jim Takelet told me he believes there is alignment between the business sector and Republicans and Democrats on the need for this investment. Now, Congress needs to just do it. Without it, he warned that the U.S. could end up like Germany, which is now literally paying the price for over-relying on Russia for energy. They allowed fragility to creep up over time uh, with their dependence on Russian gas and now with the situation in Ukraine and with Russia potentially withholding that, uh, that fuel, uh, that's a real risk to, to Germans, Germany's economy. So we don't want to get in a situation like that years down the road where we find ourselves all of a sudden uh, in a very high-risk situation. Lockheed has said it wants to double its production of Javelin missiles. Each one requires about 250 chips, and they've been a critical asset for Ukraine. Takelet told me a secure supply chain is essential, especially if this war goes on for years, but also to make sure we keep enough of them here at home. Even if, uh, if, if good fortune smiled upon us and, and the war was, was concluded quickly, the restocking of U.S. and allied uh, you know, stockpiles is going to go on again for years. So we don't have an immediate problem, Elon, but we will uh, down the road if we don't really you know, bolster our supply chain for microprocessors. Takelet said there is a national imperative to focus on technology and innovation. And he told me that Washington could help speed up and amplify existing investment by the private sector. Kelly. Elon, I thought the comments from Jim Chanos on this issue were, were really pertinent. He says Intel has $45 billion of cash and investments. They're earning 15 percent on their capital. They don't seem to need taxpayer assistance to make these big strategic such decisions. They're currently, and he quotes uh, Senator Sanders, who has some pretty harsh uh, words about this as well. And let's just read part of that. Senator Sanders says, I can't understand why so many in Congress are so eager to, he calls it, pay this bribe or move forward with this act. When the government adopts an industrial policy that socializes all the risk and privatizes all the profits, that's crony capitalism. Um, he's talking about how these big five made $70 billion in profits last year. Do they really need corporate welfare? Yeah, that's what Takelet was responding to, that type of criticism, when he said that the private sector's job is to sort of leverage the support from the government. But, you know, that's going to be one of the criticisms I think we're going to hear more of because this is a slimmed-down bill. I mean, initially, Congress had some really lofty goals with this broader innovation package to invest in technology in other parts of the country besides the two coasts, to increase research and development at some historically underfunded universities. So there were some big ideas here that are falling by the wayside because the only thing that lawmakers can agree on is the money. And I think you may end up seeing um, some votes lost on both sides of the aisle from the progressive left and from some conservatives who are worried about this as well, uh, because this does end up looking like just a handout to the corporations, even though businesses say that this type of investment 
is needed to sort of jumpstart the industry when other countries are offering major subsidies for these kinds of companies as well. Yeah, maybe if there was something with a more specific track record you could point to as evidence that this approach works, but it feels like a lot of money and, and you know, most of the times we know how these handouts typically end. One other issue that's come up is Intel apparently lobbying to weaken the provisions in the bill that would try to put in these guardrails against chip investments in China. So again, it just looks like this is a pretty self-serving act with a company that might still be interested in having that offshore capacity in the future anyhow. Yeah, there were a lot of, again, other things that were originally in this legislation before it got pared down to sort of just the bare bones. Uh, there were a lot of things around um, the type of investment that U.S. companies could potentially make in other countries like in Russia, like in China. The House had wanted to include a provision that would require a new process for reviewing that type of investment. Obviously very controversial. That got caught out and fell by the wayside. Again, it's one of the things that Congress has just punted the debate on um, in order to pass the bare minimum that they can agree on. I guess one quick final thing on this issue. We did learn, if this is correct, that Speaker Pelosi's husband has been buying a huge amount of NVIDIA. Now, I don't know if NVIDIA would be a direct beneficiary of passing the CHIPS Act or if he's doing the same thing that halftime traders have been talking about for weeks now and seeing an opportunity. But have we learned anything about what the timing of that or the extent to which NVIDIA would benefit if this act passed and what to glean from that? Well, point number one is that the Reuters report says that NVIDIA is actually worried that a critical tax credit for the design of chips is going to be left out of this legislation. That's something that they had been pushing, pushing for, so unclear how much NVIDIA would actually benefit. Hmm. But I guess to the broader point, um, Speaker Pelosi has come under repeated criticism for the types of trades that her husband makes. Her office told me this morning uh, that she had no prior knowledge of his investment activity, that this is all done um, separately from her role as a uh, speaker. And certainly Congress has been looking at several pieces of legislation that would put some tighter guardrails around the investments that either members of Congress or their spouses or dependents can make. So far, that effort has gone nowhere, though, Kelly. Right. So we'll see if anything um, comes out of this most recent stock purchase by her husband. But again, the Speaker's office says um, that this has essentially nothing to do with her, and she had no prior knowledge of the types of activity he's pursuing. No, but as you said, it does look like the CHIPS Act may move forward in some way, shape, or form, so all of these elements become so important. Elon, thanks very much for all your reporting today. Sure thing. Elon Moy in Washington. All right, coming up, Disney is the worst stock in the Dow this year. It's also the worst over the past three, six, and 12 months. So this is either a gener generational buying opportunity or is the stock fundamentally flawed? We have a bull bear debate next. Plus, IBM and J&J &J are up 5% over the past year, while Halliburton shares more than doubled before dropping 30% in the past three months. What's in store next quarter? We've got the action, the story, and the trade on all three of these ahead of their results. And as we head to break, here's a look at some of the names leading the NASDAQ 100 today, those four chips on the right. Airbnb, NVIDIA, which we just discussed, up more than 5%. Marvell, the chipmaker, JD.com, also up about 5% as the NASDAQ leads the way with a 1% gain. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. CNBC. 
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. It's been a rough year for the streaming stocks. Netflix, the worst of the bunch, down 67% year-to-date, and it's set to report earnings tomorrow after the bell. The second worst is Warner Brothers Discovery, down about 40%. Paramount Global, down about 18%. And then there's Disney. Now, it's more than a streaming company, but it's also down nearly 40% this year. It's the worst performer on the Dow and on pace for its worst year since 2001. The stock is trading lower than it was during the March 2020 COVID sell-off. So is it time to buy Disney? Joining me now, a Disney bull, Cutgun Moral, the media stra- uh, analyst at RBC Capital Markets, and a Disney bear, Doug Kreutz, senior research analyst at Cowan. Welcome to you both. And Doug, apologies for having to call you the bear here, but neutral is about the best uh, we can do. And the stock's Hi. performance <laughs> speaks for itself. So Cutgun, let me start with you. Um, what is the upside on Disney and why do you think the stock has been lagging so much? Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. And clearly, you know, softer than expected results from Netflix last quarter have continued to weigh on sentiment on streaming stocks overall as investors question the long-term attractiveness or even viability of the streaming video business model. Um, and this clearly hits Disney, uh, who has gone all in on its streaming efforts. That being said, I think it's important to keep in mind that Disney Plus is at a far different stage of its growth profile than Netflix. Think about consensus estimates having Netflix growing revenue at about 5% through 2025, but about 20% for Disney's direct-to-consumer portfolio. Uh, Disney Plus is still expanding globally. It's still ramping its content portfolio and has scope to flex its pricing power going forward as well. So ultimately, not every streaming service is created equally, and I think Disney still warrants a premium valuation that rewards its strong growth outlook that we're just not seeing today at, with the stock at 100 bucks. Yeah, you have a 176 price target, as you said. We're just under 100 right now, so significant upside, almost a double. Doug, do you think this is all just about streaming uh, being re-rated this year, or is there something bigger going on with Disney that's problematic? Well, I think, you know, there's, there's a debate going in the market now whether we're headed into recession or not. And if we are, that's going to impact Disney's parks business pretty significantly. It's always had uh, a, a, lot, a lot of sensitivity to the economy. Uh, the parks business had been very strong for Disney over the last year since since reopening, uh, a big positive surprise, but a recession could under, undercut that very quickly. Uh, they, they've done well by raising price, and it's not clear how how well that can stick if we do go into a recession. I was, I th- go ahead. I, just, I think the other issue is that, you know, they've invested an enormous amount of money in, in their streaming ambitions. 
And, and I think there's a question of whether they've invested it well. Uh, they, they certainly have a lot of great content. Um, but I think with the issues that Netflix has had, it's caused everybody to reevaluate sort of the TAM, the total addressable market of the streaming business. And, and, and perhaps Disney needs to rethink some of their strategy as a result of that. Are you speaking specifically about Fox? Fox is certainly part of it, yes. Uh, we tend to view Fox as a, as a mistake by them. Uh, Disney's great family brand content, and Fox essentially diluted uh, their, their content pool with a lot of content that's fine, but it's not really know what they're known for or what they're good at. I think Disney Plus could have succeeded just as well without Fox hmm. as it has with Fox. Very interesting. Cut Gun, can you respond to that? And then I'll get into CEO issues. Yeah, well, first at the parks, I just, um, you know, I just want to, to remind folks that uh, Disney reported record revenue and operating income at the parks last quarter, despite lingering pandemic disruptions. And I would argue that Disney's parks are perhaps as well positioned for a recession as they've ever been because of the efforts that management has taken, has, has uh, put in place through the early days of COVID in terms of improving the guest experience and storytelling ongoing innovations in technology mm -hmm. and plans to extend that Disney magic to new formats. So I, I think, you know, just on the, the park side, clearly there's perhaps some near-term um, disruption ahead, but investors should not lose sight of the potential for these efforts to drive meaningful operating leverage on well, top of an improved post-pandemic cost structure. I think the parks are probably the least controversial part of the Disney story. <laughs> Everybody yeah. can look at that and say, okay, that's yeah. working. They're just not getting a lot of credit for it. So let me ask you, I mean, you can respond if you think the Fox acquisition was a mistake, but also about the current CEO. Michael Yoshikami is a Disney bull. He was on this show about a week ago, and he said the only thing he could figure in terms of why the stock hasn't performed better is that there maybe is this cloud because of the CEO transition and how that's gone down. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, briefly, uh, I think the Fox acquisition was um, clearly transformative, and I think it was very important to bolster their streaming ambitions and to better compete with the likes of Netflix, but also separate themselves from um, all the other traditional media companies that are trying to make this pivot away from the traditional media ecosystem towards streaming. And so I think it was a very important acquisition that even though sentiment currently is fairly negative on the growth prospects and viability of streaming, I think it'll longer term prove to be a very important acquisition that um, helped bolster the content portfolio and keep in mind the, right. the global distribution as well. On, on the management team, um, I, I think you know there will always, always be a chorus of negativity surrounding any management team that has taken a stance on controversial issues or has, um, you know, I don't want to say execution missteps, but uh, has um, tried to navigate uh, muddy waters currently through macro, the current macro environment or COVID. I think the track record so far points to a very successful execution okay. against a very challenging backdrop. Then, Doug, I'll give you the last word. Would a CEO change make you more bullish? No, actually, I think Chapek's getting a little bit of a bad rap here. I mean, I think it's gone right into the parks. He ran the parks business before he was CEO, and that's really his biggest area of expertise. I think he deserves, you know, all the credit for that. I think on the streaming side, you know, he's basically followed the playbook that Iger laid down before he left. True. Uh, Iger's exit, I think, was somewhat fortuitously timed from the perspective of how history is going to judge him. He he sort of got out when things were looking great, but before any real milestones had to be met. And, you know, now Chapek has to figure out how to hit those numbers that, that are out there. Uh, so, no, I don't, I don't really think a, a change would make me more bullish. In fact, it might make me more 
more cautious because it would <laughs> sort of give the appearance that things are a little bit chaos over there. And what would make you then uh, raise your, your price target on the stock? Well, look, I think it's two things. One is getting a little bit of certainty around the macro. Uh, I think, right, the killer is uncertainty, right? Maybe we're going to recession, maybe we're not. If we are going to recession, the sooner we know that, the better. The second thing is I think that Disney does need to do a little bit of a rethink of their strategy and their targets that they've laid out there. Uh, the street doesn't really believe their long-term targets for streaming, and that's part of the problem for the stock. If they if they were to just do a reset of expectations, I think that would clear a lot of the overhang and, and would make me more interested. Very interesting. So both of you do seem to agree on that point about streaming and, and the headwind that it's been this year. We'll leave it there. Uh, this has been great, guys. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Cut Gun Morale of RBC and Doug Kreutz of Cowan. Still ahead, copper prices rebounding today after dropping to a 20-month low. One technician says it's so bad it's good, and he wrote that before today's rebound. His take on where it goes next. Plus, extreme heat expected to wreak havoc on the energy grid in some of the most vulnerable parts of the country. We'll look at the companies most exposed when the exchange continues. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. Just want to keep an eye on these markets because we've lost a lot of our earlier gains. The Dow was up 356 at the highs, and we're up only 80 points or a quarter percent right now. And the Nasdaq's gain has shriveled to less than 1%. So we'll still take it, uh, but we're keeping an eye on it as we move throughout the afternoon. Let's get to Bertha Coombs for our CNBC News Update. Bertha? Kelly, good afternoon. Here's your news update for this hour. A new report showing nearly 400 law enforcement officers waited more than an hour before approaching the gunmen at the Uvalde school where 19 children and two teachers were killed. That report also says, quote, law enforcement responders failed to adhere to their active shooter training and they failed to prioritize saving innocent lives over their own safety. The gunman charged with killing 10 people in a racially motivated mass shooting at a Buffalo supermarket is scheduled for arraignment today. The federal indictment could make him eligible for the death penalty if he is found guilty. And for the first time in its 76-year history, the Navy's famed Blue Angels aerial demonstration team will feature a female pilot flying one of the jets. The Navy named Lieutenant Amanda Lee as one of the Blue Angels' newest core members. And tonight on the news, 
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky firing his chief prosecutor and the head of the country's security agency in the largest government shakeup since the start of Russia's invasion nearly five months ago. We'll have the latest tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Kelly, okay, back over Bertha, to you. thank you very much, Bertha Coombs. Still ahead, IBM, J&J, and Halliburton all on deck with results, and all of them are pretty well liked by analysts. One of them doesn't have a single sell rating. We'll tell you which one and all the key things to watch for these key reports when we continue in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. We're kicking off a busy week of earnings with nearly a quarter of the Dow set to report. So let's get the action, the story and the trade on three important names that are getting ready for results in today's earnings exchange. We'll start with IBM. The shares are down slightly this month, but they're up 5% this year. Not too shabby. And IBM has actually risen on three out of its last four reports. Christina Partsinevelis has the story for us. And Ari Wald is managing director at Oppenheimer, and he is here with our trades today. Welcome to you both. Christina, what are we watching for with IBM? Well, unlike pure hardware plays and semiconductor companies, IBM has the ability to rely on software revenue as a recurring stream. And so roughly 75% of IBM revenues comes from higher value software and services. So in today's report, we'll be looking for that reoccurring revenue mix. Uh, according to Morgan Stanley, there was a note saying that IBM was the third most used IT service vendor after Accenture and Deloitte. So we'll want to know, is the consulting business still doing as well, given the, the macro headwinds, the slowdown, and that means that firms are spending a little bit less on IT. The digital transformation, though, to the cloud is very still uh, intact, according to a lot of reports that we're seeing today. And then Last quarter, we saw gross margins dropping about 350 basis points, and that was because of wage pressure, M&A activity not being scaled, and reinvestment back in the business. Today, we'll look for any further pressure on margins, especially when it comes to hourly wages or salaries in general. And lastly, another headwind, the strong U.S. dollar, so foreign, uh, foreign exchange um, and how that's going to hurt the company, especially given how much international exposure it has. Keep in mind, the company also has a very attractive dividend at 4.7%. Uh, wow. All right. Also not too shabby. Ari, what, what are, you, were you bullish on the stock? Oh, not bullish on the stock. I, I think IBM's a source of funds. Uh, here's why. Uh, we recently upgraded, thematically, we've upgraded growth. We downgraded safety and belief that the market is in the process of bottoming here. You know, to us, IBM's a safety stock, and, and we think is at risk to underperform through a market recovery that we're expecting through the balance of the year. Uh, and you can you really see it in the stock's price. If you look at how it's uh, trended relative to the market, it bottomed on a relative basis in November when the market was topping. Wow. Now we think its relative trend is topping as the market's bottoming here. So uh, we'd be looking to sell strength into $145 resistance. The, the the trend is is intact above $130 support. That's a 200-day average. But if you do fall below there, you run the risk of this long-term downtrend dating hmm. back to 2013. You got lower highs since then. That 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 trend resumes lower on and the break. And the stock's at 139. I like what you say, that this is a stock, if you're bearish on the market, maybe you want to own it here. But like you, if you think we're bottoming, uh, then not so much. So we'll leave that uh, IBM for uh, as a bellwether for how in investors are feeling, Ari. 
And we'll move on, Christina, thank you, to another Dow component, which is J&J. It's down about 1% this month, but it is still up about 3% for the year. The shares have moved higher on every report over the past year. It's beaten estimates every quarter for the past five years, and there are no sell ratings on the street. Bertha Coombs has the story. Bertha? Tough to want to sell J&J, Kelly. Uh, it's, this is a company that is expected to see growth of about 2.5% on both the top and the bottom line uh, going uh, into this quarter here. They're pharmaceutical areas, the areas that's really the faster growth with blockbuster names like Stellara and Trimphia, which help treat psoriasis, uh, and another drug that's also looking to be pretty good, uh, This uh, some of their um, cancer drugs as well uh, this quarter. But they're also facing sort of the trifecta of headwinds, particularly when you start talking about uh, their devices as well. Uh, they are facing a, the strong dollar, which is going to make for tougher sales abroad. They're also facing supply chain issues as far as their manufacturing and, of course, inflation, which is something that is hitting pretty much everyone across the board that needs to manufacture. As far as their consumer uh, products area, well, that's the area that's likely to be flat, according to the estimates from analysts. Uh, and they are likely to spin them off, spin that off, much as we saw today with yeah. GSK uh, spinning, spinning off. Halion, maybe we'll get more details on that on the call tomorrow. Ari, do you like the stock? I, I do. I like it better than cash. You know, this is another <laughs> absolute versus relative call. I, I think it's going to continue steadily higher over the long term as it has and outperform cash. Unsure it's, if it's going to underperform, uh, excuse me, outperform versus the market here. Just real quick in terms of levels, uh, Byron, be, be tactical with it. Buy it into 170 support. Think you get the new high above 187 looking out the coming months. But consider that Johnson & Johnson is just what we think completing its best run of outperformance since the market collapsed in early 2020. So I think there is some risk for some relative give, give back, or at least you're going to see the market catch up to Johnson & Johnson uh, right. over the coming months. It's at 175 on a 17 times forward PE, speaking of the market. Bertha, thank you very much. And we'll turn to our final name today, which is Halliburton. It's down about 8% this month as oil prices have fallen, but it is still up 26% for the year. And it's only risen out of twice, I should say, out of its last four earnings reports. Pippa Stevens has the story. Pippa. Hey, Kelly. Well, a lot has changed for energy stocks in the last month as oil prices retreat on the heels of recession fears. And Halliburton is no exception. It hit the highest level in four years in June, and it's down more than 30% since, so a very sharp sell-off there. Now, looking, looking ahead to tomorrow's report, one thing that's really key is inflationary pressures versus pricing power and to what extent that plays through into margins. So essentially, can Halliburton pass along the higher costs it's seeing from things like labor and raw materials? Can they pass it along to their customers? And then another thing, of course, is production plans from ENP companies. Halliburton has less international exposure than some of its peers. So the North American market is really important. And we did see the rig count jump nearly 30% during the second quarter. That's according to Stiefel. But Kelly, with prices remaining volatile here, we could see that start to slow a little bit. Yeah. All right. Ari, you've got been the relative uh, <laughs> bear and a relative bull, maybe we'll call it the first two. What do you do with Halliburton? Markets, it's a relative game, Kelly. Yeah. That's how it works. <laughs> and uh, I, I think here we got an opportunity. Uh, it, uh, generally speaking, as Pippa discussed, the pullback in energy prices in recent weeks, I do think that is an opportunity to buy a stock like Halliburton, I think you trade this one in a range, 
generally speaking, energy stocks, I think that weakness we've seen, it indicates that that run is slowing, but not ending. A lot of the, the sector overall coming into the 200-day average. We do prefer E&P names on this pull pack, <laughs> pullback rather than the uh, service names like a Halliburton. Uh, but Halliburton looks tactical here. Here's the range I'm watching. 27 support on the upside, 34 resistance on the upside. And I think for now we've inflected higher and you get a continued run up to that 50-day average at 34 resistance. All right. We're at 29 and we'll see what happens after results. Pippa, thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Our Pippa Stevens and Ari, thank you very much for all of your picks and trades today. Coming up with about 56 million Americans forecast to experience dangerous levels of heat this week, we'll get a look at how utilities will be impacted and whether the alt energy names will see a boost. And Bank of America shares fractionally higher today on a second quarter revenue beat. The CEO, Brian Moore, will be on Closing Bell at 3 p.m. Eastern today to discuss those results, the economy, and more. Don't miss it. Welcome back. It's not just Europe right now. There's a major heat wave hitting the South and the Midwest, impacting states from the Great Lakes all the way to the West Coast. Christina Partsinevelis is here with a look at what these record temperatures are going to mean for utility prices, and I doubt it's good news. No, it's not good news. Just like the temperature is not good news right now, because this week parts of Texas, Kansas, Oklahoma could see their highest summer temperatures to date, with predicted highs reaching... 102 to 110 degrees. So the extreme weather overloading electricity grids all while putting a strain on human lives. Take, for example, natural gas. It's a main energy source to power electricity in Texas and elsewhere, and prices are soaring nearly 30% just in the past two weeks alone. And that's why the state-run power grid in Texas, ERCOT, has asked consumers to conserve power twice just last week alone. Tesla, Toyota, Samsung have all made moves to curb electricity usage. Reuters reporting that Toyota is reducing its night shifts and cutting the workdays shorter. GM said it would lower its uh, air conditioning usage as well. And so the heat is driving up electricity prices, but blackouts and inefficiencies weigh on firms like Energy Energy, Entergy with power production in the Deep South, and Exelon, you can see on your screen, all negative month to date. And hot and aging, the U.S. Department of Energy found that 70% of U.S. transmission lines are more than 25 years old. And that stat that I just told you about right now came from the most recent review that was held back in 2015. It's the latest I could find. So lines, though, typically have a 50-year lifespan. So if you just add on the years, that's about 31 years, 50-year lifespan. So it's a balancing act between natural gas, wind, and coal for utility firms. And dangerous heat levels are testing power grids like never before. So many angles of that that, know. you know, you just don't consider until it all goes catastrophically wrong. We'll Usually see. that's how life is, right? Exactly. And then it's like, oh, why didn't we do this? Yeah. And why didn't we do that? And speaking of which, reactive, right, when we have alternatives, we have solar, we have, you know, people looking for ways to kind of add this resilience. But is, I mean, the stocks have been challenging because uh, there's not the stimulus or what do you call it, subsidy support that they were hoping for. But is this still an opportunity? Well, it is an opportunity because the two key uh, renewable energy sources in Texas or contributing to the Texas power grid are solar and wind. But often they are unreliable. Even though we've brought on a lot of new capacity in the form of wind and solar, that's not always, always the most reliable uh, source of energy because um, you're really reliant upon the weather. And if the weather's not perfect, then you're going to lose out on some of that extra capacity. 
So as you mentioned, solar power is contributing to a record share of power generation in Texas. Many companies, though, like you mentioned, Kelly, have been under pressure lately, and that's because of separate issues. You got uh, a lack of climate bill that, uh, which would include solar policies, and then a slowing housing market, considering so many people use uh, panels on their homes. True. Sun Power, for example, look at that stock down about so what is it, 16, 18 percent in the last three months. And while the iShares Global Clean Energy ETF had its worst week last week since March 2021, uh, 2021 down about five percent since last month. Monday. So they are alternative renewable sources, yet still unfortunately unreliable. And you cannot take for granted the human power that needs. You need those people to go out there and, and maintain them. And when the heat is just you yeah. know, 100 plus, it's tough. And I've heard, you know, that certain natural gas plants that were meant to always just kind of be there to help provide power are now being relied on as if, you know, providing power was their main full time function. They're being asked to do it in, in max out kind of ways, especially when coal and, and you could even say nuclear is just not operating at full capacity. So uh, profit-wise, they're not operating at the, the best level that they could be. So really, the pressure, like you said, is just on natural gas. True. Christina, thank you very much. Christina Parts and MLS. I want to draw your attention briefly to shares of Apple, which are turning lower in the last few minutes on reports that the company plans to slow hiring and spending in some divisions in 2023. Now, it's not a company-wide policy, but the uncertainty in the economy seems to be moving even one of the world's biggest companies in that direction. We heard comments from Goldman earlier this morning about slowing the velocity of hiring. Now it's Apple whose shares have gone from positive to down nine tenths of one percent. Still ahead, so bad it's good. Maybe one commodity that one technician has said is poised to bounce, she said. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's some better news. Copper prices rebounding 3% today after falling more than 30% over the past three months. I say good news. It's seen as an economic indicator. And my next guest says there could be more gains to come. And if so, what does that mean for oil and other commodities? Joining me now is Carter Worth. He is the founder and CEO of Worth Charting. All right, you were early on this, Carter. You were right. Where are we going from here? Well, you know, sometimes it just gets too stretched in one direction. Forget about, in this case, that it was down, and sometimes it's too far off. Think what oil did, right? And then you do get mean reversion. Very hard to time it. And you get them wrong all the time. This one is bouncing nicely. Let's just look at a chart or two. I mean, copper was down 37% from its peak to trough, and we've got a bounce today. I think it can carry. And in general, uh, just as commodities were loved three, four, five months ago, now they're sort of hated. And so I think, again, you take the road less traveled and play for a bounce. Right. And I know that you're looking at the charts, but I'm going to kind of press you from the macro piece of this. My point being, you were also correct to call the top in energy when you called the top in energy. So would you want to go out on a limb and, and add this up and say maybe the whole complex is at another higher inflection point or is this really more copper specific? Uh, I think that's fair. I mean, uh, we had some fun together, obviously, uh, looking at energy at the top and it was quite steep. And, and then if there is something as equal and opposite uh, reaction, these are things that are quite steep to the downside. And so you do get bounces. The first thing to say is it would be very hard, of course, to recoup the losses and make new highs. So I think that's out of the question. Copper's not going to make new highs anytime in the next year or more. And I would say, well, those highs are in as well. But what we do know is that it's overdone and that you can get a balance that should carry it and energy. And it all is, of course, associated with the dollar being too stretched, and that, too, is mean reverting. 
True. So weaker dollar helps support crude, copper. And I, I like what you're saying. I want to make sure everyone caught it, which is that we might not be back at those highs for a year, for more. I mean, could we be at basically a plateau now? And we'll let you know others think through the implications for the inflation rate. But do you think we could flatten out here for some time? I think that's pretty good. Now, obviously, if we really go into a proper recession, uh, you have cyclical assets, high beta, if you will, very sensitive to uh, economic winds that will get worse. But even if, I would just say it this way, even if copper is going to go much lower from here, the path lower passes through a higher price. It's just overdone on an hmm. intermediate basis. All right. So you're not ruling out that we could see another leg down. Parting thought comment about the market overall, Carter. Ari Wald just said he thinks we're at a bottom, basically at a bottom here, at a bottoming process, while others remain worried that we're going to have this next uh, shoe to drop. Well, there are unfilled gaps above, and I think in the S&P, that's really 4,030, 4,050. So the bounce that's been underway for a month, the lows are uh, June 16, June 17. Uh, here we are mid-July, and I think the bounce continues. Okay. Carter, thanks for your time today. You bet. Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Still ahead, home builders anticipating a major slowdown in home buying for the rest of the year, according to the confidence data this morning. We have the latest numbers, the impact on affordability and on the broader economy. Next. Welcome back, everybody. Before we go, let's get a housing health check. The Home Builder ETF, the XHB, is actually slightly higher today, even though we got this historic plunge in sentiment. Diana Olick is here now with what's behind the drop and what it means for housing. Diana? Well, Kelly, it's affordability, plain and simple. The builders are seeing buyers drop out, and that's why builder sentiment dropped 12 points to 55 on the Home Builders Index. That is the largest single monthly drop in the survey's 37-year history, with the one exception of April 2020, the first month of the pandemic lockdown. It's also well below expectations of just a two-point drop. Anything above 50 is still considered positive, but sentiment has now fallen 24 points since March when mortgage rates really took off. In July of last year, it was at 80. And it's really the speed of this turnaround that's so remarkable. Even during the historic subprime housing crash, builder sentiment fell from mid-2005 to the start of 2009, but in far smaller increments over four years. The biggest one-month drop was seven points in November of 2005, coincidentally, when mortgage rates took a sharp move higher. Now, on the report released today, current sales conditions dropped 12 points to 64. Sales expectations in the next six months fell 11 points to 50. And buyer traffic also down 11 points to 37. That last one now solidly in negative territory. The builders cite worsening affordability as well as continued production bottlenecks. They also said 13 percent of builders surveyed reported reducing prices in the past month to limit cancellations. So Kelly will be watching that in the home builder earnings reports for sure. But I'm looking at this market reaction, Diana. So we have this terrible confidence drop. We have rates back on the rise today. I saw the 10 year around 3%. So I don't know, call that 6% on the mortgage rate. And we have the green for the XHB up about a quarter of a percent. So it's almost outperforming. 
Right, and it may be that the builder stocks are just so cheap right now. I mean, they are down so dramatically since the start of this year. And as you keep saying, you know, some of the multiples here, you just see these stocks and you say, maybe they're worth a buy on the dip. Who knows? But again, I do think that we're going to see some more pain in the housing market, especially when we see that next set of builder earnings. Is there a way to say that the pain is, is I don't want to say healthy or or necessary, but that maybe this adjustment is actually happening so quickly that it's going to allow for some kind of necessary reset. Well, I think using the word healthy is good. We do need to see home prices come back down to earth in order for buyers to get back into this market. I mean, as I said so many times over the past year, this housing market is simply unaffordable and unsustainable at these price levels. So maybe this takes the heat out of it. We don't want to see prices drop, but we want to see those gains, those 20 percent gains come back down to earth. Yeah, it'll be especially with rents doing what they are as well. Diana, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you, our Diana Olick. Speaking of the home builders, DR Horton is set to report this Thursday in a super busy week for earnings. We're going to look at one name that looks technically sound ahead of results and one that's a bit shaky. That's on Power Lunch, which begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.